Good morning, my name is Fiona um, and I'm part of the church here. It's really great to be with you. Um, and this sermon series that we're covering um, in the book of James is something that we did in the four o'clock service back in like May, June. So apparently it was thought, oh, this is good. Let's just redo it again. So um, this is something I've already preached on before. So hopefully this still feels fresh and interesting. Um, so we're looking at the book of James and we're thinking about some practical ways that we can live out our faith for Jesus. And we're focusing each week on a different chapter of this book, um, honing in, I think, really on how we can demonstrate our faith to the wider world around us. So just to recap, in case you've not heard any of the sermons so far, uh, the first week we had an introduction to James from Andrew, and he spoke a lot about having faith um, and looking after those who are vulnerable. And I'm going to touch a bit on that as well today. And then Graham spoke on the first chapter of this book where he talked about whizzy, WYSIWYG. Um, what you see is what you get. And I think in that he was talking a lot about integrity and how that can play out in our character, faith and action. And then last week we heard from Besede on the third chapter on the power of words and particularly this kind of idea of the power of the tongue and, and the way that we can use that um, for good, for God's purposes, or for bad. Um, and then today, you might have noticed we just read chapter two. So just want to like, we're zooming back a little bit, like rewinding back a little bit. Um, so I'm, not, I'm sorry, it's a bit out of, we're a bit out of um, a touch. Uh, we're thinking a little bit about how we can love our neighbors today in a Jesus-like way. And when I prepared this sermon back in June, um, I really wanted to make sure this felt like something encouraging. And so I, I still the same. I still want this to be a sermon where you're not mishearing me. I'm not saying, telling you what to do. These are meant to be words, hopefully, that are uplifting. And my prayer is that we would all leave this space with that feeling. Uh, but before I go any further, I'm actually just going to pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for... Um, the clock's going back, so we get an extra hour in bed. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are speaking to us constantly through your word. And thank you so much that it is a constant. I pray particularly for the things that I'm going to say, that you would get rid of this, the guff, the stuff that isn't um, of you, and that anything I would say would be uplifting, and that your Holy Spirit would be moving. Amen. So, a quick recap of the overall book of James. Um, Andrew did cover this, but I'm just going to give us a little summary. Um, so, firstly, it's a letter. It's written by James, um, as the name suggests. And he was a leader of the early church. But what's quite interesting about this overall book is it wasn't written to a specific person or community. Instead, at the start of the overall book, he says this is aimed at the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So he's aiming at Jewish Christians who are exiled and spread out in the foreign land. So they're not all together, potentially. And as a result of both the sender, James, and the recipients, this book is very, very practical. And it also, also kind of filters everything through this Jewish lens. Secondly... Um, as Andrew pointed out, 
James has this like interesting feel of like a wisdom book. So while it is practical, it almost feels at points a bit like the book of Proverbs. And I absolutely love that he, he really does blend this like directness, he's very to the point, with also this like ability to not quite fill in all the gaps. So we've got this space in the middle where we as listeners or readers have to think about how we're going to respond practically. And I, I do think he knew what he was doing when he wrote this letter. I think he knew that Christians, Jewish Christians, need to be reminded of a few things. But what I really like is that he was trying to stir them into action. So this chapter, chapter two that I'm preaching on today, is divided into two halves. So as I was preparing the sermon a while ago, I actually still think this is where I'm drawn to anyway. I was really drawn to this first section. Um, so I'm going to focus largely on the first 13 verses of um, this chapter. But just to paint an overall picture, um, we see James address favoritism, its pitfalls, and the law that we should follow. But the second half of the chapter is all about faith and deeds, words and actions. It's very well known, so you might have heard some of those verses before, and it has been quite a controversial cluster of verses over the last 2,000 years, um, lots of debate about what it means, and I'm not going to get involved in that today. You'll be happy to hear. Um, he doesn't mess around. He ends this chapter saying, faith without, word, faith without deeds is dead. So he's pretty to the point. But the key, key thread throughout this entire chapter, these 26 verses, is a concern for the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. James is very passionate that his readers need to prioritize these people and love them well. Jesus is deeply concerned, not just about our spiritual well-being, our faith. He's very concerned about that. Don't mishear me. But he's also deeply concerned about the physical well-being of people. And James goes on to remind us that because we are believers of Jesus, we need to demonstrate his love towards other people. So with all of this in mind, when I was thinking about this, um, we're going to think about loving our neighbors like Jesus would. And I want to summarize the title of this talk. Sometimes it's quite helpful to have a little um, tagline. Um, R and R. Um, so not rest and recuperation, although that would be a nice talk, I'm sure. Um, but instead, R and R, resist and retain. Resist favoritism and retain the royal law. Let go with one hand and hold on, hold fast with another. So resist favoritism, the first R. Um, so we all have favorite things. Can anyone shout out a favorite thing they have or a favorite, favorite thing they have in their life? Food. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anything else? West Ham. <laughs> yep, great. Uh, controversial, controversial. Um, anyone else? Favorite things? Your camper van. You've got such a nice camper van, Sue. I can see that. Yep. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the, the song, My Favorite Things from the Sound of Music. 
Yeah, yeah. Raindrops and roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Yep, love it. Um, I, we all have favorite things. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, perhaps, is I really like swimming in cold water. I usually prefer doing it with other people as well. Um, I, my favorite season is probably autumn because of the changing of the like colors. Um, my favorite app is Instagram. Like I love all of these things. So we all have favorite things and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But how often are we happy and willing to admit that we might have favorite people um, in our lives or in our church community? How often are we willing to admit that we might have people we prefer over others? That we can slip into showing preference towards people who look and act a certain way or demonstrate some sort of financial or social influence? I think it's quite uncomfortable for us to, to ask those questions. We probably don't like saying it out loud. I really, really don't. In verse 1 of this chapter, James says, don't show favoritism. And I don't think he's referring to West Ham, um, to food. Um, I don't think he's referring to these worldly things. I think he's referring to people, to God's image bearers. Later on in verse 9, he says, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. It's obvious that this notion of favoritism is, is a sticking point, and to show bias or discrimination is a sin. But what I really like about this chapter is that James fleshes out his point with a bit of a kind of a metaphor, an analogy. He gives an example that I think would have been really relevant to the Jewish Christians he was writing to. He paints a picture of their meetings, their church gatherings, a little bit like this one. And he paints a picture of two types of people that might have attended. So you've got the man wearing fine jewelry and um, clothes. And then you've got the man who's kind of wearing shabby clothes. It's, it's, I think it says filthy clothes, like old, not, you know, you've got these two contrasting people. And he contrasts the treatment and attention these men are given. One man is prioritized. The other is disregarded. One man is offered a seat, the other is not. One man is noticed, the other is not. And it all comes down to this worldly influence and status. Preference for one person comes at the expense of the other. Favoritism is linked to what someone might be able to offer rather than who they are in Jesus' eyes. And James seems to suggest that when we slip into this cycle, we become judges of other people. And actually, we decide who wins and who loses. And yet, when we look to Jesus, he resisted all of this. He didn't show a preference for the rich, the powerful, the influences of his day. Jesus associated with everyone and the Gospels really do highlight his special attention 
towards those who might have been disregarded by society. Unmarried or widowed women, the poor, the sick, tax collectors, children. I think Jesus was far more interested in someone's character than he was in their social status or their wealth. Loving our neighbors, according to James, starts with us refusing to show bias towards a certain group of people. Instead, choosing to treat people equally so that preference doesn't cloud our judgment. And in church, we see such a huge spectrum of God's image bearers, and we see it made clear in this community. One of my favorite things about St. John's Hoxton is that when we gather, we gather together with people who don't always look like us, who aren't always um, from the same background. We gather together with people because we are all drawn together in Jesus. We all are called to bring um, all of ourselves and we are called to love God and love other people. So that first R, resist favoritism. Let that go. Drop it. The second R, um, retain the royal law. I feel like I'm trying to trying to spin this, this R and R thing, but we'll we'll go with it. Um, <laughs> retain, hold fast to, preserve, keep—all quite action, active words. When we think of laws or commands or rules, I wonder what connotations you have. What springs to mind? Um, rules are made to be broken. That's what some people say. Um, perhaps you might think laws or commands are a bit restrictive, a bit manipulative. They're not fun. And as I was preparing this sermon, I had this real image of us letting go of our worldly bias so that we would actually leave our hands and hearts free to then hold on to God's holy commandment outlined by James in verse 8 of our passage. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. James is referring to the whole law, the royal law of God, but he gives special mention to loving neighbors as ourselves. So it's clear that he has a bit of a concern for the Christians and believers he's writing to? How much have they been paying attention to loving others well and without partiality? And mentioning this verse, mentioning the royal law, would have reminded the Jewish Christians of the laws given by God through Moses in Leviticus 19. But particularly would have reminded them of the command, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he said it was firstly to love God with all that we are, followed secondly by loving others as ourselves. These two are the linchpin of our faith. And when asked who our neighbors are, I really like that Jesus didn't give us a person's specification. He didn't give a blow by blow. This is who your neighbor is. Instead, 
he left it open. He suggests it's about the mercy we show towards others in times of need. Those are the people who our neighbors are. And I, I do find it quite interesting that James didn't hone in on this first command given by Jesus, love God. He seems far more interested in making sure the people who he's writing to are reminded of this idea of loving our neighbors. And it makes me think that maybe this was an area that they were slipping up on. How much were they actually paying attention to the poor, the broken, the disregarded? So retaining the royal law, holding on to it, it helps us to demonstrate the inner work God is doing in us to the world around us. It's really countercultural. It's what sets us apart. In showing care towards our own well-being, but the well-being, the physical well-being of others, we give a glimpse of the care God has for image, his image bearers. And we can choose to remove our bias and actively follow the way of Jesus through how we treat all people. I think what James is getting at in this overall passage is that loving our neighbors is not transactional. It's not dependent on what we can gain. It's sacrificial. And actually, it can be quite uncomfortable. But ultimately, I think it's intensely freeing. We are no longer thinking about what we can get out of a relationship. All of that disappears. So R and R, resist and retain. Resist favoritism, let it go, and pick up the royal law. Um, and as I come in to land, these are two active principles that I think we can live out. Choosing not to show preference to people with influence or power. And instead, holding fast to the command for us to love others as ourselves. I think it can be really easy for us to forget that there is a really strong, dominant worldview. Hello, Roa. Um, around us. Hello. Um, that says that if we don't show ourselves to be people who are productive... Uh, extroverted, sociable, powerful, influential, <laughs> then we're no longer a priority. I think our society really, really undervalues people who can't be productive. It undervalues people who are unwell, who aren't working, who are asylum seekers, who are elderly. That is the dominant worldview that we see around us. I do, I genuinely think that. Um, and I've worked in a few charities now and I've seen that play out time and time again in the systems that we have. If you are not working, if you are not seen as able, you're disregarded. But as James points out, God thinks differently. Verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? God is far more interested in the spiritual life of people than their societal status. God's kingdom is upside down and topsy-turvy to what we expect 
So with all of this in mind, I wonder, where do we notice favoritism sneaking in? Where do we notice kind of that selfish gain, this idea that I could get something out of this relationship? And I wonder if we were to think about this passage for ourselves, if we were to think about the analogy, the, the rich man and the poor man, who would they be for each of us? I think we've all got a version of them. Who are they in our workplaces? Who are they in our friendship groups? Who are they in our families? But most importantly, who are they in this church community? And I think that God is nudging us today to just rethink that, rethink our favoritism, reset our actions, to love people without having to gain something. And I absolutely love that this church is a space of difference and diversity, but we can easily slip into showing favoritism. R&R, resist and retain. Perhaps God is reminding us today that our obedience to the command to love others as ourselves is actually an outworking of the kingdom. It demonstrates the radical grace of Jesus. So my prayer for each of us today is that we would let go of that favoritism and be able to hold on more tightly to the holy justice, fairness, grace, and love of Jesus, seeing everyone in the light of who he calls them to be. Um, and as I end, I'd love, us to, I'd love to pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for this reminder that you love us, that command for us to love you with all that we are. But thank you, God, for that reminder that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. And I pray for each of us that we would notice perhaps where we are showing preference at the expense of someone else. I pray that we would notice people in our communities, our families, our friendships, our workplaces, who are on the fringes, and I pray that we would bring them in. Thank you that you are a God who notices. Thank you that you are a God who notices not just the, the stuff that's going well, but you notice all of who we are. And I pray for each of us that we would let your Holy Spirit do some of this heavy lifting. I pray that as we move into intercession and then a time of worship, that you would grant us perspective. And I pray that you would grant us grace and peace for ourselves as well as for others.